Although the characters we discuss are fictional, the challenges people face every day are not. The information we provide in this podcast is for entertainment and informational purposes only and should not be used in place of advice from a mental health or medical professional. If you are struggling with mental health issues, please seek professional help. Thanks for listening and welcome to the Jedi Council Podcast, where we explore mental health in your favorite fictional characters. Hey everyone, welcome back to the next episode of the Jedi Council Podcast. This is Brandon Saxton. And Katie Gordon. How are you doing today, Katie? I'm doing great. How are you? I'm doing really good. Uh, we're continuing on kind of our second batch of having a lot of really cool and exciting uh, guests on the, on the Jedi Council Podcast. And today is no exception. I'm, I'm absolutely thrilled that we have Dr. Aaron Hanlon on uh, today. How are you doing today, Dr. Hanlon? I'm doing really well, and I'm really happy to join you for this discussion. Well, thanks so much. Why don't we go ahead and get into it? I'll do a brief introduction. This is um, just to give our listeners an idea of Dr. Hanlon's background and, and how we got interested in inviting him to be a guest on our show. This is all from his website, which we'll link to in our show notes. Dr. Aaron Hanlon is an assistant professor of English at Kobe College. He is currently on sabbatical as a visiting scholar in the Department of History and Philosophy of Science at the University of Cambridge. He is a literary historian specializing in 18th century British and transatlantic literature and the literature and culture of the Enlightenment. Dr. Hanlon has a range of interests and expertise, including epistemology and the organization of knowledge, science writing, the history of data, political theory, and fictionality. So I first learned about Dr. Hanlon's work through his compelling national media essays on college campus-related topics, including things about free speech and trigger warnings and other topics like that. I shared it with a lot of friends and colleagues that I have because I thought that the essays were really compelling and clarifying and insightful. I highly recommend checking out his work, and like I said before, we'll link to his website in our show notes. So today we'll focus on topics that are most related to our podcast themes, science, fiction, and their intersection. That sounds good. So maybe I'll start things off. And did we ask Hart? Yeah, we asked. Uh, Aaron. We did. Aaron, you're doing good. We've, we've covered that. Good. <laughs> yeah. So uh, is it okay if I, you have said in email that we can call you Aaron. So I'll, I'll stick to that if that's okay. Please. Please call me Aaron. Okay, okay. that sounds good. Uh, so I saw on your website, you teach Popper's uh, logic of scientific discovery in one of your classes. And I know Popper is, is a, philosopher, uh, a philosopher of science whose work that was covered in my curriculum uh, as a clinical psych grad student. And I'm curious, how does Popper come into the work and in, in the kind of curriculum in your classes? Yeah, I mean, I'm first of all, I'm really glad to hear that you also teach Popper. I think everybody should read Popper, and we should teach it to our students, regardless of what they're majoring in or studying. And some of our colleagues should probably read him too, but that's maybe a different conversation. <laughs> um, I, um, yeah, I teach Popper in a in a few courses, um, and the main idea behind that is is just that, um, as you know, Popper is really interested in some of these fundamental questions of the logic and the limits of the ways that we know things, and specifically in uh, the question of how we draw the line between what constitutes scientific inquiry and what doesn't, what Popper calls the line of demarcation. And so for my students, when we're talking about not just how to do literary studies, but why would you do literary studies, 
I think it's hugely important that they have the tools to answer that question, why? And Popper offers a really useful set of answers to that question. Um, and so he's useful to kind of arm students against a lot of really silly things that they'll inevitably hear about the place of literary studies in the wider world of knowledge, like on one end of the spectrum, uh, literary studies is useless, you shouldn't do it because anything that you would ever want to know will be accomplished through scientists and science traditionally understood. Um, to literary studies is everything because reality is a construct and you can analyze everything like you analyze a text. And I think both of those things are wrong and students are going to need to navigate what types of questions in between those poles are most useful to use literary studies methods and approaches and which which types of questions they'd be better off looking to science to answer. Thanks for that explanation. Are there particular questions that you have as an example that, that people have come across that in, in your classes that you think would be better framed for science or vice versa? I mean, I, the example that I usually give is a little bit hokey, but um, I still think it's useful. Um, if you wanted to ask a question like, I, I want to know the distance between the earth and the moon, then I'm probably not going to be interested in an interpretation of the metaphorical significance of the distance between the earth and the moon. Um, but if I'm going to ask a question like, was Hamlet an ethical character or by extension, um, did this politician behave ethically then I might start looking into some of the stuff that we do in literary studies and certainly our friends and colleagues in history and in philosophy as well. So I think it's about identifying the types of questions that we're asking and the specific types of knowledge that we're looking for. Okay, great. Thank you. That That's helpful. Uh, kind of in that vein, I thought that your section on your website, What is an English Professor?, was also very useful. In fact, Brandon and I started thinking maybe we should write something about that for clinical psychology. Okay. In that in that section in your website, you wrote about misunderstandings that English professors mainly correct grammar and discuss their opinions about literature. Will you please describe how scholars in your discipline use the scientific method to conduct research? Yeah, sure. So this, this idea to write this thing came after a, a meeting that I had that was about curriculum in which uh, some colleagues and I from different disciplines were trying to think about and define what scientific thinking is because it might become a subgroup of the general curriculum. And we were all struggling, some more than others, I think. And people were trying to tell me that, you know, this line of demarcation for them is that literary scholars sort of just offer our opinions about things. We don't really test things. And I thought about, well, what do I actually do? What do we do when we do literary scholarship? And it's clear to me that, for one, we would take our expert knowledge, our background knowledge into account to develop a hypothesis or a conjecture about what we might expect to find, um, develop a research question, and then go about trying to collect data to answer that question. So in more concrete terms, that might be a question like, um, what did early American readers think of Cervantes' Don Quixote during the American Revolution? Um, and so answering that question might be 
gathering data and evidence from the text of Don Quixote, from readers' responses and reviews in 18th century America, from historical accounts of maybe what heroism looked like and things like that, and kind of combining this data and giving it a look and then forming a conclusion from there. So the idea is that though the nature of the question is never, like in science, going to yield one kind of definitive, tested, um, right answer, that doesn't mean that the process isn't very similar to the scientific approach in general and that the process itself is evidence-based and rigorous and not about sort of forming subjective views and opinions about our objects of study. Yeah, I really... I think one of my favorite things about kind of following you on Twitter is kind of seeing you challenge this idea because there's, I specifically related to kind of your error, there's some narratives that are kind of pushing against humanities. And I really like the way that you argue against those and formulate or kind of uh, explain the humanities in kind of this data-driven, evidence-based way that I think a lot of people uh, maybe outside of that really don't uh, appreciate. I really like that. Yeah, thank you. And I think, I mean, I'm, it probably should go without saying, but I'm just a huge fan of scientific inquiry and a right. huge fan of, fan of scientists and my scientists' friends and colleagues. And so when I hear them disparage things out of just sort of a lack of thought or a lack of knowledge about something, I, I recognize that this also makes science look worse than it should, right? So yeah. I really, I want to support science in my support of my own set of disciplines. Absolutely. So kind of while we're on this topic about misconceptions, are there any other kind of common misconceptions about humanities professors that you think would be kind of helpful to debunk on this show kind of for our listeners? So anything, you know, misunderstandings that maybe come from the general public or maybe come from professors in other areas or other fields? Yeah, I mean, one of these things is just following on what we were talking about is I think there's this growing name narrative now, it seems, I see it everywhere now, that this kind of image of the English professor who's anti-science mm-hmm. and referred to as a postmodernist yeah. um, who doesn't believe in truth and these kinds of things. And I think it's a really different thing, for example, to have maybe a field that has included a history of postmodernism and postmodernist thought from a philosophical standpoint that's incorporated some of those ideas and also wrestled with those ideas and critiqued those ideas. It's a big leap from there, which is true to therefore we've all developed this kind of cultish worldview based on Derrida or something. And I think that that's, that's one misconception that, that we're not anti-science we're science advocates and we're, we're interested in scientific inquiry and humanistic inquiry and going hand in hand to produce knowledge together. That's what most of us want to do. Um, and the other thing that I think is just really pernicious, it's like one of those things, like you hear people say you lose 80% of your body heat through your head or something like that, which is wrong. Um, but it has such incredible staying power. And this, this idea that science is harder, Mm -hmm. um, than literary scholarship. And I don't know if that comes from, in part, the some of the K-12 educational mm-hmm. burden based on the two types of disciplines. I know for English ends up being one of the few occasions for students to kind of, um, you know, express their thoughts and views and things like that. Um, and so it gets kind of hampered um, 
and burdened with that charge in ways that distort people's impressions of what college level and professional level literary scholarship would look like. Um, I know that there are different pedagogical objectives. I mean, if I treated my literature class as a kind of weed out pedagogical situation where I assume that it's too hard for most people and then mm-hmm. try to weed them out by, you know, grooming only the best or whatever, um, as people sometimes do in the natural sciences, mm-hmm. uh, there wouldn't be a whole lot left either. So I, I, I hope, and again, I think this narrative really hurts both of our fields. It's bad for scientists because I, I hate, my heart breaks to think about a student or a young kid who's interested in science being told it's just so hard though i mean you're probably you know you just have to be really really smart and if you're not you're not going to make it i mean fortunately people don't say those things about literature scholars but i you know we shouldn't be saying that kind of thing about any discipline or any field of knowledge i i could see how this would be really frustrating especially with you being such a science advocate um to kind of not feel that being reciprocated for your own field from scientists that i can imagine that would be really frustrating i'm wondering do you think some of that stems from like maybe a place of defensiveness that's like, look, we're from scientists where there's kind of have this feeling of we're doing this thing that other people really can't do and are kind of have this kind of exclusionary uh, attitude toward the humanities or something? I mean, I, I do think part of it is that I think we're also all um, fighting for you know, a shrinking pool of resources mm-hmm. as well. And so some of this, once we're suddenly kind of out there having to justify our existence, then we start to get a little bit, we start to cut what I would call epistemological corners, basically, in our dealings with one another, um, which is really unfortunate. So, I, yeah, I mean, it, it's it's really complicated. And I think sometimes, too, it's just we don't live in a time right now where people seem to either care much about what literary scholars are up mm-hmm. to or care much about getting the actual dirty, difficult um, process of doing science accurate in the public right. either. So I think neither one of us benefit from that. Right. Yeah, yeah that, that makes a lot of sense. One thing I thought I'd briefly mention as an example, because it, it reminded me uh, of what you were saying about this idea that and the humanities ideas for our disciplines to come together and create knowledge together. I thought that your Vox article that was about Steven Pinker's Enlightenment Now book was, mm-hmm. I mean, really about how across disciplinary divides we can work together to get things more accurate when, when we're doing that. So I'll make sure to link to that. But I thought your message in that was was very helpful. It was clear that it wasn't trying to say one field or one area discipline is better than the other, just that we should work together and then we'll produce the best knowledge for everyone. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, and I, I think there are people in, in my discipline as well who could be better at this too. But I mean, I, I don't, I don't really identify first as a a humanist or a, a literature scholar even. I mean, my first point of identification is as a knowledge worker, my interest is in furthering, knowledge and i can't do that alone um nor can my discipline do it alone and so i really do i I really do buy into the spirit of furthering knowledge across disciplines together despite these kind of odd institutional barriers that we have um sometimes so definitely yeah i i think that's great one example of how of science and literature kind of working together 
comes from, um, I, I saw that you're editing a volume of essays about, or on the related topic about how developments in experimental science, mathematics, engineering, and social science are, were influenced by British literature 1600 to 1800. So it's kind of this idea of literature and science influencing each other, which I think is different than we usually think about things. And I was wondering if you could describe that concept to us in a little more detail. Yeah, lo- would love to. So this, these disciplinary, these institutional boundaries that we have now between science, social science, and humanities, as you probably know, are pretty recent um, 19th century and really institutionally entrenched in the 20th century. And during the Enlightenment and the Scientific Revolution, the period that I study, um, those divisions didn't exist in the same ways. And so you could find people basically working on a common set of problems from a few different angles. So an example of this would be that around the same time that experimental scientists or then called natural philosophers were working out some questions about what are the limits of empiricism, uh, what counts as data or reliable data, what types of controls do we need to have a good experiment, how do we know what we know, Um, the novel as a form, as a genre, begins to emerge at the same time to begin portraying with the express goal of portraying uh, sort of real life of average people in more realistic ways, as opposed to the kind of knights and dragons and epic tales that preceded it or that dominated prior to the novel as a genre. So novels actually wrote a lot about, had a lot to do with scientific practices and were thinking through some of the very same questions with the early scientists or natural philosophers. Jonathan Swift's Gulliver's Travels, for example, has a part three satire on certain aspects of the logic of experimentation, um, which I admit scientists at the time wouldn't have found terribly helpful because it was pretty crude. But people like Swift, Alexander Pope, Margaret Cavendish, um, Abraham Cooley, poets and scientists alike, were investigating a lot of common problems. And so literature was bearing out some of these conceptual questions. And those conceptual questions in literature were being folded back into scientific writing and back into the laboratory, as it were. So, Katie mentioned this at the beginning of the show. Currently, uh, you're a visiting scholar in a department of history and philosophy of science. And I'm wondering, are there any particular historical texts or philosophers of science that you would recommend psychologists pay attention to as we're kind of striving to improve our own scientific practices? Yeah, I think, um, and you may have come across these or may already have them, but I, I think of a few kind of classics that can be useful. I think, of course, like we talked about, Popper's The Logic of Scientific Discovery is important. Um, there's a really good kind of classic in history of science by Stephen Shapin and Simon Schaffer called Leviathan and the Air Pump, which is about a conversation between Boyle and, and his air pump and Hobbes and negotiating some of these questions of what makes a good experiment and why should we do experiments to know things. And then on the data side, which I think is particularly useful for people working in, you know, in data heavy um, and statistics heavy fields, Ian Hacking's The Emergence of Probability is really good history and philosophy of how we've come to think probabilistically. 
and Lisa Gittleman's collection, uh, more recent than these other ones from MIT Press called Raw Data is an Oxymoron. Um, it's a collection of essays on history and um, philosophy of data through in different disciplines uh, across uh, several centuries. So these are some really good books to look into, I think, for anyone who's interested in kind of exploring the often the messy roots of what we all do and how difficult it is to, you know, to actually say, yes, I know that. Thank you. Those are some great recommendations. I was going to say that one thing Brendan and I really appreciate is how you use your expertise to effectively communicate information to the public. That's really inspiring and a big part of why we do this podcast, trying to communicate mental health in a fun and clear way to the public. Where can our listeners learn more about you and your work for the public? Um, sure. Everything that I have is um, is archived somewhere, uh, fairly accessible on my website, which is AaronRHamlin.com. Um, my Twitter handle is AaronRHamlin, um, no spaces in there. And uh, so if somebody can put up with my Twitter exploits, then they can follow me on Twitter. Um, which and, Brandon and I both recommend you do. Yes. <laughs> I'm, I'm very, very grateful that you uh, appreciate it. And I'm, I'm working on, uh, I have a book, um, that I'm working on the, on the, the history of the, of data and its relationship to narrative, but that's probably far enough in advance that people aren't going to get quite into that. So, um, yet, but that's coming at some point. I'm working hard on it. That's awesome. That's fantastic. I'm looking forward to that book already. I'm I'm into it, even if it is far in the yes. future. <laughs> <Good>. <laughs> Before we wrap up, and thank you so much for your time. This has been really fascinating conversation. Is there anything else that would be good for our listeners to know or that we should talk about before concluding today? I think this set of questions were great. I just want to thank you for having me and really thank you for, for doing this because I think this this podcast and these topics are just so so important. And just as you just as you expressed uh, interest in my public writing and my attempt to talk about some of these issues in public, I you know it's sort of a right back at you scenario. Where I really value what you're doing, and and I hope you keep it up. Thank you so much. Yeah, that means a lot. Thank you very much, Aaron. Well, that sounds good. Well, thank you so much for being on. We really appreciate it. And folks who uh, want to follow Aaron, we'll have links to articles and Twitter and everything in the show notes. So you can uh, kind of check out all of his work there. And uh, thanks for tuning in. And we'll be back again next week. Thank you for listening to the Jedi Council Podcast, a member of the Geek Therapy Podcast Network. You can find more information about our podcast or blog at www.jedi-council.com. If you would like to support the Jedi Council podcast, please check out our Patreon page at www.patreon.com slash Jedi Council. The views expressed on this podcast are our own and do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers. Additionally, this podcast is for entertainment and informational purposes only and should not be used in place of advice from a mental health or medical professional. If you're struggling with mental health issues, please seek professional help.